This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled The Path of Attention, recorded July 14, 2013 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. At the center, we talk about paying attention. Actually, we talk about the four principles of meditation. And attention is the first of the four. And then we talk about how the other three are commitment, detachment, and surrender. But really, if we look at attention itself, we find all of these qualities embedded in attention. In order for attention to be really attentive, it has to be committed. In other words, we have to have resilience and willingness to continue to look. If we have a great insight and then we just totally drop it and get lost for the next 20 years, then uh, it's not really serving us that well. So with, with uh, attention comes commitment to be committed, paying attention, not just in day-to-day -day practice, but moment to moment beginning to develop this. And this is really what meditation does, is it trains attention to be present with what is arising and to recognize things as they are. And then, of course, detachment, another quality of attention. As long as we are fixated on what we want and what we don't want, our attachments to the way things ought to be for us then we can't really pay attention to what is actually here. Attention is co-opted and pulled away. So detachment is a big part of this. And through detachment, when we, when we actually allow attention to really settle into our experience, we come to surrender. And surrender really flows out of attention. As we see more and more through commitment, this detachment that we maybe have been contriving suddenly starts to happen by itself. We are just naturally detached because we see through the, the ruse that has been driving attention to get stuck on transient imaginary things. As we pay attention to the breath, and as I mentioned earlier, and thoughts arise, and we just return to the breath. It is really important to get this, that we're not really trying to get rid of thoughts at all. That the thoughts are really a part of this process. Being aware of what is. Seeing what is. Mind is conditioned to move away from what is, constantly. And so when we bring attention back to the breath and we want to just push that away, we don't want to be aware of those thoughts, that process is a form of delusion. We're deluding ourselves. We don't want to have that. Well, with meditation, we, we see it and we acknowledge not only the thoughts arise, but if the, the sense of irritation with the thoughts comes up, we become aware of that as well. That is really what meditation is designed to do. So since delusion is the play of consciousness, the natural play of consciousness, if we, re if we resist our deluded ways, all the things that we find 
irritating about ourselves, we are denying reality. So instead of trying to get rid of it, we bring attention right into delusion. Not just in the meditation, but in our life. In our moment-to-moment being. We want to see it for what it is. We want to see how it's created. We want to see what motivates it, what drives it. Simone Weil was a, a Christian mystic. She had this to say about paying attention. She said, one of the principal truths of Christianity, a truth that goes almost unrecognized today, is that looking is what saves us. Looking. Paying attention. It saves us from identifying with metaphors, from being an automaton, living in conditioning, living in this conditioned process of mechanized movement, mechanized reactivity. And by paying attention in this way, without trying to change it, we allow attention to awaken to the reality of consciousness itself. This is an interesting process. Because as long as we are pushing and pulling, we have a self. We are identified with the one that is pushing and pulling. On the other hand, we have the path of delusion, the path of inattention. And it is the path of delusion and suffering. When we identify with imagined separateness, there's a natural suffering that arises. We long for wholeness. It's not verbal. It's not something we can identify as a thought. It's beneath thought, prior to thought. It's just a a longing to be whole. But here we are with this belief spinning, telling us that we're separate. And we're believing it moment by moment. So as we live in this inattention, we strive within false identity and we continually strive to bolster the sense of self. Because we think that by by bolstering it, by making it more real to us, then we will feel okay and we'll be happy. But in fact, this is the very thing that keeps us from recognizing what we are. This uh, story of I must continue to think about me. It's like we have to keep thinking ourselves into existence. But it's not just thinking. We have these, this, this longing, this sense of something is wrong, something is misplaced, something's amiss. And that is what is driving this process of wanting to make self more real. But it's, it's an endless process. Because as soon as we stop thinking about it, we perceive directly that there is nobody here. But before we actually know that, another feeling has moved in and that feeling verifies that we are here, that we do exist as a self. And so all it takes is a moment of nothing 
and a sudden, and we're back. It doesn't take much at all. It's very, very subtle. If we don't know this is going on, we miss it. And we are fully identified with the process. But this process is, is, is it's, it's endless and it takes us nowhere. We never achieve that happiness that we want. We never get there. It's like we're blowing up one of those Mickey Mouse balloons, you know, those old Mickey Mouse balloons. How many? You probably, a lot of you probably didn't know about Mickey Mouse. <laughs> but they used to have these balloons and they had like little ears. And when you blow them up, the ears would even, you know, it'd start expanding. And then the ears would go, beep. You got these ears. And you blow it up some more and it would be Mickey Mouse. Well, this balloon has a hole in it. So we have to keep blowing it up. Because as we stop blowing it up, the ears sort of start to come down and it just starts to melt away. So we got to blow it back up again. And that's, that's how we keep ourselves going. We have to keep emoting and thinking ourselves into existence. On the other hand, we have the path of awakening, which is a process of actively paying attention, as I said. And we begin to, by paying attention, we begin to notice that the striving isn't working. If we don't pay attention, we could go our lifetime struggling to feel better, and it just doesn't work. And you know, we get depressed, it's suicidal. But when we start to notice it doesn't work, rather than trying to act on it, we just recognize it. Then we become curious, if we're blessed, we become curious to look and see, well, what is this really? What is really going on here? And this is the reason that we begin to pay attention. We just need to sustain attention and look and keep looking, and it naturally goes deeper. There is a natural curiosity. We just need to tap into it. But our, our, our basically, the problem that we have is our attention is conditioned itself. The attention is conditioned to ignore reality. Like that sweet sound. I think we should just listen to that, because that's, that's the truth. Right there. <laughs> So with attention, we want to notice how the mind wants to go somewhere else. Constantly, it's wanting to move out of this moment. It wants to feel better. Even the sense, you know, when we stop thinking about it and everything kind of stops, that's a sense of not feeling good for a moment. Ah, I need something. Boredom. So we want to, we want to fix that boredom. So we start doing stuff. So this is the process. Our mind has a mind of its own. And when we start to meditate, we start realizing this fact. When we sit and we, we go, okay, I'm going to sit with my breathing. Within a moment, we're thinking. The mind is thinking. But it does it by itself. And we begin to notice this more and more. It's happening by itself. It's a process of wanting to feel better. We're sitting 
and we're just, ah, you know, this is just not what I want to do. And in that moment, thought arises. Ah, It gives us something to do. (laughs) But when we begin to recognize that that process is really not helping, that that is a big distraction, gradually in the meditation, that's not such a big thing. It stops happening so much. Even if thoughts arise, it doesn't matter. We just, it's okay. We don't care. We notice them. There's no discouragement. There's nothing. It's just, oh, this is what's arising. Consciousness is your true identity. And consciousness loves all the stuff that we don't like. It seems this way. It loves to see itself in all of its forms. It loves a beautiful sunset. It also loves dog shit. doesn't matter. It loves it all. Every form, every manifestation. Even in the darkest suffering, awareness is wide awake, not turning away. We may turn away, but awareness knows that, sees that, and loves that, no matter how it goes. This may seem like a stretch when I say this, (laughs) but you can discover this yourself. You are consciousness. And since you are consciousness, whenever the mind is really still, and I'd say on retreat for, for folks that are new to practice, sitting on retreat for a few days, the mind just naturally tends to settle down. Not always, but often. Settles down into a kind of a stillness where it's just not distracted and just sort of in this moment, right here, aware of whatever is arising in this moment. And within this stillness, You're aware of just nothing. Just this, it's kind of like, it's womb-like. It's just like, you're just there. There's no problems. Now, this doesn't happen all the time. But for moments at a time on retreat, this, this is something that is noticed. When this happens to you, this is a great opportunity to watch and notice something. When it's very still like this, just nothing. There will be a little quivering, a movement. And then there will be something. Maybe it's a thought. Maybe it's just an image. And it can be from anything. It can be a picture of your mother. It can be somebody that you've never saw before. It can be a place. It can be anything. And it just arises. And it's spontaneous. And if you're present with that, you can feel the joy of its arising. And this is why I say that consciousness loves that. It loves, it loves it when these things just show up. It's like it wants to see itself in these forms. And we could say, well, it's just conditioned to be there. But look around. All of this. It's you. What does this feel like? If you recognize all of this, all of these faces, 
where your face is, right in the midst of it. What would that be like? Would that irritate you? It would be a kind of an exuberant, wouldn't it? In the Quran, there is this passage that Joel quotes a lot, but it fits perfectly here. Muhammad asks God, why did you create all of this? And God's reply, I was a treasure that longed to be known. A treasure that longed to be known. The treasure is all of this, coming into being and passing away moment by moment. But we don't see it that way. We see a world that exists in time, very concrete. And when he says, I was a treasure that longed to be known, he's not saying that it's just the parts that we like. He's referring to all of it, the parts that we don't like parts that horrify us. Even in anger, fear, jealousy, pride, those moments of irritation, confusion, frustration. Notice, we don't want this stuff. We don't want these feelings, these mind states. And so we strive to get rid of them. And this is how we separate ourselves from what is true, what is real. When we live in the path of inattention and avoidance, ignoring what is, then we become identified with the one that wants things to be its way. So it's an interesting puzzle when we strive to escape discomfort, we create the one that strives. So if we resist anger, we become anger. We become anger when we resist it. If we want to be happy, we become the one that is wanting happiness. We become that movement of the mind that is striving. Happiness is obscured by wanting it. That's a strange paradox. We always think that, well, if you strive to be happy, you'll attain happiness. But it's not the way it works. If the striving becomes this constant process, That's what we condition. And even if we get what we want, it's never enough. We want something more. And so we hide from what is true and real by wanting something else. So right in our fear or our terror lies our own enlightenment. So on the path of attention, If we feel upset, rather than trying to feel better, we allow feeling upset. We bring attention right into the feeling of it, and we allow it to be there just as it is. 
We aren't trying to like it. We aren't trying to put up with it. We're not resigning ourselves to it. We are inviting it to be there, allowing it to be there so that we can feel it as it actually is, letting it be just as it is, noticing all the ways that the mind wants to change it. We just notice that. Those are just manifestations of it. So we just remain aware of all of the resistance there. Now, there there are some very useful practices for working with emotions. The Tibetans have many very precise uh, practices for, for really digging into this stuff. As we bring attention into emotions, we discover one thing that's very interesting. They are a conflation of two things, thought and energetic display, thought and emotion, story and sensation. The story is just thought arising. And when we see thought as thought, it has no basis. It's just thought. It's, if you watch thought for a while, you come to this. Again, this is something very useful on retreat. You watch thought arise, you watch it pass away. You see it's, it arises, it's like lightning, and it's gone. But we keep it coming back by thinking about it, bringing it back, thinking about it, milking it, and then the emotions are enhanced, and that process kind of goes back and forth. Thought triggers emotion, emotion triggers thought. So through attention, we recognize this thought is just transient play, transient ideas. Nothing in it besides that. And in seeing it this way, we recognize it is nothing. Just nothing. The story is supported by emotion, which is this energy that I mentioned. And if we rest attention within it, again, we discover it is not solid. And if we just invite it to be there, we feel it just as it is. After a while, it, it's, it's constantly moving, constantly changing. It's no longer there. When we allow an emotion just to be within, just allowing it to be in our own heart, because we're not trying to change it or do anything with it, it just dissolves away, becomes nothing. So through this process of attention, then, thoughts and emotions become nothing. Or as the Tibetans would describe it, they say they self-liberate. Just by not turning away and just allowing them to be as they are, they return to stillness. They become the consciousness that they already are. It's just that when we are no longer fixating on them, they return. It is really useful to be aware of stillness. It's Really, it's all that's here. It's the only thing we know. But we have learned to fixate on the forms of stillness, and we don't actually recognize it for what it is. 
And when I say stillness, it's just consciousness without an object. Consciousness itself, the, the essence of awareness. So even if we bring up the thought of stillness, it's arising in this field of stillness. And even though we can't find it as a thing, it is always present. It is the timeless field in which everything arises. It is unborn, undying. And it is your true identity. It is the one taste that we taste in all things. We just have to develop a taste for that taste so that we can recognize that. The Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu tells us, because it's a kind of a pointer for, for learning to taste. He says, I do my utmost to attain emptiness, which is stillness. Consciousness, awareness. I hold firmly to stillness. The myriad creatures all arise together, and I watch their return. Returning to one's roots is known as stillness. This is what is meant by returning to one's destiny. Returning to one's destiny is known as the constant. So what he's saying here is, I do my utmost to attain emptiness through practices of attention. Seeing how everything, when we put attention on an emotion, how it self-liberates back to stillness. It returns to stillness. The myriad creatures all rise together. All the phenomena of the world, the myriad creatures. And I watch their return. So we're watching how things are returning to stillness by actually paying attention. Like this, we hear the sound. It arises in stillness, and it's gone. This is what is meant by returning to one's destiny. The destiny is what we've always been. We always return. You know, we can talk about death. When, when the body dies, it returns to this, this constant consciousness. But it isn't really in death so much. It's in every moment. Every moment when the mind ceases to think and emote itself into existence is a moment in which the myriad creatures are returning. They return to stillness. So there's a moment of stillness right in the midst of all of this activity. So let's, let's try a little exercise to see if you can discover the stillness, which is the constant. I would like you to just close your eyes for a moment. And to begin, just notice what's there. Feel the flux of what is there. Sounds arise, thoughts arise. 
sensations arise. Notice, they all arise and they pass away. But something remains. We could say, just to point towards it, we could say it is the screen in which all of these other phenomena arise and pass. So as you observe the flux of the mind, not thinking about anything particular, see if you can notice what is always here. Not a thing. It's it's that in which all of these images, thoughts, and feelings arise and pass. Now I'm going to ring the gong here. And when I do, first of all, this is a very restful little exercise. So just allow your mind to rest. Notice that stillness that we're talking about. It's that which is here always. When I ring the gong, allow the sensations of the sound to just ebb away back into stillness. Allow them to just dissolve. And when the sound reaches the end, allow attention to rest in that essence of no gong sound. Just allow attention to rest there. Now, other sounds may be coming through it. That's okay. Thoughts may be coming through it. That's okay. Just rest attention in this one place where the sound ceases. Okay. And don't try too hard. Just rest into this. words arising in stillness. Notice the words are punctuated with these little gaps of stillness, the space between thoughts, space between sounds. Resting there, allowing everything to just be as it is. See if you can notice the distinction, if there is one, between whatever arises in the mind and the awareness of it. Whatever sounds arise 
and the awareness of it. Anybody find a distinction between the sounds and the awareness of the sounds? Yes, Ellie, did you have? Did you find it? Did you find something that was different between the sound and the awareness of the sound? Yeah. You did. I always just, and I've done that before. It seems like, and you just—it just doesn't last very long. What doesn't last? The awareness of, of, without. Okay, so let me ask you this now. I want to ask you, do you do you hear or can you perceive a difference between the sound and the awareness of the sound? Oh, the awareness of the sound and the sound are pretty much the same. They're the same? Yeah. They are the same. So look around the room. The visual phenomena arising. Can you find a distinction between the awareness of those visual phenomena and those visual phenomena? Anybody here find that distinction between them? Barb, you found one. So what is it? I don't see it. You oh, know, it's I like there it is and there it is. Right? It's like I'm awake when I'm awake when I uh, when I feel a stillness and uh, and there's a dullness in the in the mechanics of seeing. Ah, uh, okay. So so what we want to do is actually let go of the idea of stillness. Because stillness can become an idea. It's arising in this field of stillness. So very subtle sometimes. So let that go for the moment. And what I want you to do is I'm going to ring the gong again. And I want you to see if you can find a distinction between the awareness of the sound and the sound itself. Is there a distinction between them? Okay, here it comes. I don't feel the distinction. No distinction. Yeah. This is this is actually a very important thing. It sounds a little crazy. If anybody walked in off the street, they go, What are these idiots doing? But it's actually very helpful very helpful to recognize this because so much of the time we separate everything from consciousness. So when we see something, we see it as a thing over there. How do we do that? It's a magic trick. (laughs) But we do it very well. And the reason we do it very well is because we have lots of practice. So as we begin to pay attention more and more, we begin to recognize the oneness of things. And we do it, a lot of the ways that we do it are just by recognizing the stillness. Not, a, not the idea of stillness, but noticing that things are constantly 
transient and passing away. And when they dissolve away, we recognize what is actually here. And we do this more and more through practice. The problem that we have, the problem that we face when we are trying to discern stillness is that we want to make it into something. And this is really helpful to us because we see the mind wanting to find something. And we, we basically there's nothing to find because what it is that we, this stillness actually is, is it's that which is aware. So if we, if we just, if we, as we look for something, we get lost in the looking. So we just let all of that go. And with committed attention, we, get, we begin to just naturally recognize that forms are the stillness. Even the dark emotions. So here's a, here's a quote by Patrol Rinpoche. He's a Tibetan master. He says, don't hanker after the object of desire. Look at the craving mind. Desire liberated by itself as it arises is blissful, exquisite. When we see in this way, it's, it has this delicious quality to it. So then even when we see the stuff that we don't like, there is that delicious quality that comes up. We start to notice this. The bliss void is none other than all discriminating wisdom. That's the rest of the quote. And then I have one final quote, and I'll be finished up here, and then we'll take your questions and comments. Singstan, a Zen master, wrote, The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. And this is, this is that distinction that we make. We make one distinction, and all distinctions come into being. And we are identified separate from everything else. So that's, that's the gist of my talk. Are there any comments? Yes? We're talking about um, when it was death that then there's stillness. Okay. And then is that applied to everyone? I mean, because I've, I've heard that your karma and the way that you die it affects the afterlife. So, for some people, there's not stillness. Well, this is the funny thing about this process, because really what happens in death, the true death is what's happening whenever you stop thinking yourself into existence. But we don't recognize it that way. We wait till the body, the body-mind disintegrates, and then we go, that person died. But we, we get lost in metaphors here. And so it's true. If someone is clinging to existence on the path of, of grasping and pushing away, then 
at the point of biological death, this process continues. It's just this grasping and pushing away. It will continue. It won't be necessarily in any particular form. And it, and it really loses us in an ability to talk about it. But there is the same energy that happens from moment to moment that just continues. Because it really has nothing to do with a body-mind. A body-mind is a manifestation that we seem to be associated with. And, uh, you know, within the world of form, we identify with this body-mind. But when we are actually sitting, we recognize body-mind is arising and passing constantly. Body-mind in all form is, is manifests as a, as a kind of a radiance of being. It's, it's not a thing in itself, you know. And we know this even intellectually. The body is not a thing. It's, it's this process of cells, looking scientifically, the cells are constantly being remade, breathing in this constant metabolic processes, and then we have the intestinal flora, and they're just teeming with all kinds of little life forms, and all of them are going, no, it's me, it's me. But really, you see, there's no me in any of that. There's no me in the self. But all of it seems, you know, as we believe our stories, we buy into all that. The reality is that those are just stories. If we believe those stories deeply, then it just continues. And it just and it has nothing to do with the body-mind, really. It's just a process that just keeps happening. Then when the body-mind dies, we talk about how that person died. But there's a very simple way of looking at this. And when we get really still and we rest attention into this, we see how we are deluded by concepts, by thoughts, by imagination, by grasping to understand, because we want to know what this is about. And we're afraid of, of death. You know, death is a scary thing. We don't want to... We, these practices are, are so helpful for really sinking down into this. It's not that we don't have any of those feelings anymore. They're all there, you know? If you talk to Joel about... Um, his experience of grief when his one of his cats died, he'll tell you, oh, he cried. He was really sad. He had all these emotions. But it isn't him. They just arise, and they're, and they're wonderful and beautiful, just as they are. They pass away. So I don't know, I kind of beat around the bush quite a bit with your question. I'm not sure I actually answered it. But, um, <laughs> You know, people that are your loved ones, you like to think in death, you like to think that finally they're resting in peace. And this is it, you see. We, we think that our loved ones are somehow separate from us. And we really believe that. And then when they die, we feel like they're somehow gone. But when we really rest attention into our experience, we begin to discover very different things about everything. We see there is no separation. And so when our loved one dies, truly, they didn't go anywhere. We, you know, I, I've had this experience myself, and I'm sure many of you have. You, you have someone that you love very much that passed away, and, and you're grieving and feeling a little sadness because you don't get to play with them anymore. And then, one day, you just, there they are in your mind. You're, I mean, they're just as real as... Anything. They're just there, showing themselves, speaking to you. And, you know, if, we're, if we cling to that, and we want that, then we become deluded. 
But if we just let it show itself, we begin to recognize this is a very open-ended life that we have. It's not what we think at all. Our thoughts are actually what deceive us. They become the veil. Our emotion thoughts become the veil to actually recognizing the truth of life and death. Because life and death are really not separate. They're not different. I still didn't answer your question. <laughs> I don't think you're going to get a straight answer from this guy. Yeah. So, what you're just saying is what I believe, and I find out that I believe this in between the emotional stuff where I'm not... I don't want to say acting on it, when I'm not being it. But then, Proof of Heaven, the book of Proof of Heaven was somehow a relief for me because it gave me conceptual pictures and images. So, what do I do with the conceptual images of that? Because that's what they were. They're, they're his perceptions of a process that I then took on for a while, but it kind of scared me. I didn't like it too much, some of it. Was like the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I was yeah. told by a Lama to quit reading Scared. it because it's not for the layperson. So there are two pieces to your question. Now, one is when we when we get into this and we start seeing nobody's here, there's a lot of fear that comes up. Yeah, it's very scary. And so, what do we do with that? Well, that's what those practices, you know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead is, you know, Tibetan teachings. Right in the midst of that, we have the teachings of emotion and working with emotion. Yes. So we, we actually settle in with that fear, and that fear begins to inform us. If we run from fear, we create fear. We become fear, and that's the story of I. That's how the story of I works. That's why we're afraid. Point, yes, that is the point. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you. That is the point, but on yes. the other hand, you see, the book Heaven, uh, proof of Heaven. Proof of Heaven. Alexander. You see, now that's wonderful too. But, you know, the, the, the problem with it is if you just totally buy it, hook, line, and sinker, yeah. then you've just deluded yourself. But it's a beautiful story. You it see, is. these stories arise and they're wonderful just as they are. We don't, we don't have to push away things. We, we call, oh, that's just deluded. We can't be having that. It's all the play of consciousness. So we can dance with all of it. Yeah, just let it go. Yeah, just let it be. Let it be. No pushing it away. Yeah, we're letting it be, and in in letting it be, it goes by itself. It returns to stillness. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes. Um, You said something in in this talk that kind of blew me away, or made me think that maybe. Okay, let me explain. Um, I've always thought that knowledge and learning was imparted by metaphor, allegory, parables, Christ spoken parables. And then over here you're talking about that this consciousness takes away metaphors. And um, I don't understand that. Well, it doesn't take them away. We just recognize what they are. What are they? Because so much of the time we live in whatever we think is real. Right. It's so, a metaphor, and we don't know it. We take it to be the reality. But it's all of knowledge, then, is... is uh, it's all metaphor. It's, it's wonderful. Metaphor. So but it's, you see, when I say metaphor, I'm not, I'm not denigrating it at all. It's beautiful. It's perfect. What does it mean, then? 
What is what? What is the knowledge and well, metaphor and all these things? I've learned a lot by metaphor, by the example, and even the, the you know the Buddhist talk, all these beautiful poetic things that are metaphors. And I think so. I have knowledge from those. So is knowledge not um, is knowledge, is knowledge is a, a delusional thing? Well, no. I mean, well, then there's look. no I. So why do I need knowledge? No because it's the play. It's the play. We are playing. We get to play with all of this stuff. What am I going to do with it? Enjoy it. Play. Enjoy it. Yes, somebody said it. What? Enjoy it. Yes. Well, I do, but I, but I think it's important. But we will. How do I and you progress see, or go further or get over here in this system where I am right now is from knowledge. What's and really helpful. about this. Okay, I hear what you're saying. Knowledge is wonderful, but it's an expression of the truth. It's not. It's nothing in itself. You know, if you just have a bunch of knowledge, what good is it? It's got. It's, it refers to something else, right? It refers to life. And so, if you start investigating life, you begin to realize that life is not what you think. Life is something else entirely. But we have these wonderful ways. It's kind of like. We call this a hand. I've used this metaphor probably too much, but we'll do it again. <laughs> we call this a hand. But if we look at this, we realize that this, it's not its name at all. This is something, we don't know what this is. The mind goes, well, I know what that is. It's a hand. But you see, that's a label we put on it after the fact. Here is something which has no name, but we believe it is a hand. Damn it. But you see, it never becomes a hand. Nothing ever becomes what we think it is. But is that knowledge, the fact that it's not hand? Is the, fact that it, the fact that we call it a hand is knowledge. But the seeing, which is, is, is it's pre-thought. It's, it's, we, have these, we have this deepening awareness where we recognize we are this consciousness. And when we do that, when, the more we see that, the more we can relax. And we go, oh, yeah, sure, okay, that's a hand, great. But we know it's not a hand. We know all of this is not what we think. And you're using the word no now. Words are, <laughs> words are like this. We recognize you're it. Recognizing that then is better than knowing. <laughs> Well, I, I wouldn't say better. I would just say that if you don't, if you don't recognize truth, then you find yourself suffering. Because if you believe, for example, you are a self, an individual separate self, right in the midst of that is a lot of suffering. Because right there, it's like we're trying to cling to the body. We're trying to hold it and make it stay. But it keeps going. It keeps falling apart. You have your friends. People are dying. Oh my God! Things are. I got wrinkles that I didn't have last week. Uh, we're learning that here that we're not a self. I'm learning that. That's knowledge. That's the teaching. The teaching is there are no selves. So then, what you do is you go and look and see if that's your experience. But in order to do that, we really need to settle the mind, because if it runs off in stories all the time, and we're thinking about it, we'll never come to anything. Because the mind is constantly wanting to get what it wants and push away what it doesn't want, right? That's the, that's the whole mechanism. So we just sit with things, and we allow attention 
to observe what is. So we start to witness experience. We start noticing. It's like, you know, I've used the metaphor of the naturalist. Observing the birds building the nest. We just observe the process. We're not trying to fix it. We're not trying to tell them how to build their nest. We're not telling them we want a big nest or a little nest. We want them to build it just like they're building it. So we watch our mind doing what it does. We just let it do what it does. And in the process of doing that, we discern everything is passing away. Our knowledge is passing away. Everything goes. Something remains. What is that? We can't say what it is. We call it stillness, but there's no name for it. Just like there's no name for this. And as we discover that, we surrender to that. We just let everything be. Then we can can learn stuff, and we can do whatever we're doing. We can go to football games or whatever. Life is perfect because we are not, now we're not identified with the person that's doing all these things. It just happens by itself. Life happens. It just unfolds. There is nobody doing it. We think there is. That's our experience. But when we go and look, uh oh. <laughs> Isn't it true that we cannot not be paying attention? Yes. So the issue becomes not to pay attention, but rather how to place our attention. We can't not, we can't cease from being attentive because we are consciousness. Consciousness is aware. What's happened is attention has become conditioned to ignore something. So it's still aware. It's just ignoring through conditioning. It's ignoring big hunks. Most of our experience is being it's over here. It's in the periphery somewhere. We can't see it because we don't want to see it because we believe we're a self. And we're doing everything we can to keep that belief intact. That makes sense? Okay. Yeah. So what you're suggesting is that we place our attention on that which we do not want to attend. Yes, exactly. Because that's the thing. See, we, we keep turning away. We're denying. And, you know, whenever we deny anything... We're separating ourselves from what is. And we feel like we, you know, it's like we become the, the actor because I'm holding it at bay. Who is holding it at bay and why? We, so that's what we look at when we do our practices. So, good question. Thank you. Could, I, could, I, could, he, could he say, could you say the last thing that you said again? I have a real problem with Double negatives, I get confused. Am I? Could you repeat what you said about whatever you said? (laughs) Because we cannot not Because we cannot not We cannot not be paying attention. We cannot turn on turn it off. We're always attacking something. But then you said something right at the end. Because we are always paying attention. The issue is not whether to pay attention. The issue is, what do we attend to? And the real value is to attend to that which the egoic self does not want to attend to. Oh, yeah. When it denies, when it represses the shadow, whatever. That is what we should attend to. Because in that is enlightenment. 
Excellent. That's where we discover. That's exactly it. Otherwise, we just go to what we like all the time. We're just creating this separation constantly. So, thank you. Exactly. Attend to what you don't want to pay attention. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Any other questions or comments? All right.